I'm Tefera Jemian. I'm Caddy Diop. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah! This week we are kicking off Anne of Green April, our April devoted entirely to the first four books of the Anne of Green Gables series by L.M. Montgomery. These books really need no introduction, except that they might need some introduction. So, Anne of Green Gables, the first book in the series, which we are doing this week, uh, sees Anne Shirley arrive at Green Gables, her new home on Prince Edward Island. She makes friends. She hugs trees, she falls in love, and she inspires a hundred years of book loving around the world. Now, Caddy had never read Anne of Green Gables before. Bailey has read nothing but Anne of Green Gables before. And I'm somewhere in the middle, so this should be a fun conversation. So, how did we feel about this book? I would say that there might be a point at which you're too old to read Anne of Green Gables for the first time. <laughs> um, I guess I didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't, I didn't understand the, I guess I just didn't get it. I think I might've, yep, I might've just, that ship might have sailed for me, alas. I think that's entirely fair. Um, I, I I was thinking about this as I was rereading it, and I, I have another friend who is reading it as an adult for the first time, and I'm like, oh, I hope you're going to like it. Because um, I think I was trying to... I was trying the other day to, like, assess why it is that I love these books so much, and, a, like, a portion of it is certainly the familiarity and, like, the comfortable familiar nostalgia of them so I can very much understand that reading them as an adult is a different experience than rereading them as an adult who read them for a first time as a child um that said I thoroughly was delighted by this rereading so I did read Anne of Green Gables as a kid I didn't get into the whole series and I didn't get the Anne of Green Gables fanaticism um, but I did really enjoy the 80s miniseries, largely for the clothes. And and I deeply understand Anne's appreciation for puffed sleeves. Rereading this, I enjoyed it more than I expected to. Uh, largely because of Rachel Lind, who starts the book off. And is she's really kind of a dreadful person, but she's really fun to watch. So that was my takeaway, was that I cared much more about the adults, which is kind of a theme for me in rereading YA books. That's really interesting. I did, I didn't hate the adults. I didn't hate the kids either. I think my big problem with this book is just that I related to absolutely nothing in it. Um, I think I had a bit of an, a bit of an issue with Anne, um, in herself like just that she's just so you know she's just so much 
Um, I think that that's the only way that I can kind of just describe it. Like, I, I totally get the, the storyline of the, 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 the orphan girl who finally has a family. Um, but I think Anne got on my nerves at some point where I was like, just stop trying so hard I guess like she she has such a desire to be loved and and to be cared for but at some point it's like it didn't I didn't I wasn't invested in her well-being by the end which is a horrible thing to say but no I think that's I think that's entirely fair and I think so now I'm curious I want to do like I really want now I want to do a detailed study of like the people I know who um like love Anne of Green Gables and I I am just guessing right now based on myself and based on the people that I know that the people who really love Anne of Green Gables are the people who identify strongly with Anne and can like see a lot of aspects of themselves in Anne which is like very true for me um like you're correct Anne is Anne is a lot um I I'm a lot sometimes so <laughs> I I feel a, a, a kinship with, with Anne's allotness. Um, and so I, I wonder if that's part of it too, is um, like the more you see parts of yourselves in Anne, the more you like her and the less you are like her, the, the, the less uh, winsome she is. You know, that's really interesting to me because I feel that as a child, in a lot of ways, I was very Anne-like. Um, I was very into poetry and romanticism and dressing up in fancy costumes and uh, doing stupid things for the romantic thrill. And um, like the the uh, Lady of Shalott scene where she, you know, goes off in a boat and almost drowns um, is highly relatable. But as an adult, I, I feel like these are aspects of myself that I have definitely kind of both pruned for the good of myself and the people around me, and also quashed uh, in self-preservation. And it's really interesting to think about that, because she also irritates me. I feel like Anne always sounds like she ate the wrong mushrooms constantly. And like, you know, today she would be like smoking weed and listening to vinyl and crying. But um, it's interesting for me to think about the things about her that irritate me that also I identify with and kind of try to figure out what that means for me personally yeah I I look I relate to what both of you say like in the sense that I get it she's a lot I think I'm also someone who is a lot I think if I put my finger on it what really bothers me is Anne's lack of anger (laughs) Um, and, uh, this seems to be a through line for me. I seem to really, uh, enjoy stories where, um, characters are, ha- like, are not motivated by rage, because that would be a little strong, um, but who, you know, embrace it. And the fact that, you know, this was written in, like, you know, it was published in 1908 and, and, and it's set in the later part of the 19th century, if I'm correct. Um, you know, I get that, that we're not supposed to see, uh, female characters being anything other than prim and proper, um, you know, epitomize all these beautiful values, but, but it felt like the one thing that was missing 
right? Anne's been shh, like she's been she's been just thrown around like a bit of a like I, I want to say like a tissue like not a tissue the uh, Kleenex but like like a like an object with little or no value. Let's let's say that and just the amount of I guess probably the amount of repressed anger that I felt in Anne is what upset me the most. Yeah, I think that that's super fair. And that's only something I noticed as an adult is like that Anne should be way more traumatized than she is. Um, or like like that she she should like as a character, it's unrealistic for her to be as positive as she is. I have a theory about this that is this is something that I sort of find interesting in in my interpretation of these books. And so I don't know how much, if anything, either of you know about Ella Montgomery herself. Um, But like broad strokes, she led a pretty rough life. She had a very unhappy marriage. Um, and, And I'm not a like Ella Montgomery historian by any means, but I know that she had quite an unhappy life. Um, And from what I understand, both like reading the books, and I'm pretty sure I've read this somewhere, is that the Anne books were very much like her escapist fantasy of like, she was kind of imagining herself out of her life and into um, the life of somebody that started out very difficult, but then really turns around. And so I think it's interesting. I don't know if reading it that way... um, adds any sort of interest to to what you've been talking about, Caddy, about about Anne's lack of anger. If we can uh, get into adaptations for a second, I think uh, something that really changed my reading of Anne of Green Gables, and I'm going to piss some people off right now, um, but was watching Anne with an E, the BBC series, a C- a CBC series uh, that came out recently based on Anne of Green Gables, but it's it's an interpretation. It's not a direct um, adaptation. Um, but one of the things they do in the first season is really look at Anne's trauma. And they give her nervous babbling and her romantic fantasies really that aspect of escapism. And, um, and also kind of show why and how a damaged child might try really hard to make everything pretty all the time, especially when talking to grown-ups. And that definitely affected my reading of it this time around and kind of gave me a nuance of understanding. Obviously, that's not something Ella Montgomery put in. And I know there are a lot of diehard Anne fans who really, really don't like that adaptation. Uh, But for me, it added an element of nuance to the character that kind of helped and I think was rooted in Ellen Montgomery's history in a in a responsible way. That's pretty cool. I think I might have to check that out and that may bring me some comfort, I guess. And I remember being like, I guess towards the end of elementary school, so maybe like being 10, 11 and coming home from school by myself and you know, making myself a little snack and watching some after school TV. And um, there was always Road to Avonlea on at some point. I think it was right after The Simpsons. And I remember having such a visceral reaction as a young kid and just being like, turn this off. I'm not here for this. Um, But 
Yeah, so it is interesting to see that, like, in the retelling, once again, of the story, even though it's not a direct, ad- uh, even though it's adapted and not just a transposition of, of the books to, to, to TV, it's nice to see that they would take what was taboo then and show it now. Um, and I think that that's going to make for a worthy watch. What if, uh, which is your favorite, Bailey? Which adaptation? Yes. So I am actually, I think, slightly unique in Anne fans that I had never got super into the various TV shows. So I have watched Anne with an E, um, and I feel very ambivalent about it. There are some things that I really don't like. I do really like what Teffer was talking about, about how they do sort of explore Anne's trauma a little bit more and how it informs her character. Um, without really like changing her character from what it is in the books, but sort of like exploring kind of the the different sides to it. I do really like that. Um, there are many elements that I don't like, but I do really like that part. Um, my definitely like my preferred adaptations, my favorite adaptations of the Anne books are the two musicals. Those are those are the Anne adaptations of my heart. I have not seen musicals of Anne. I did not know. I think I knew they existed because I think you mentioned them to me before, Bailey. But like, that is a whole uh, aspect of Anne media that I am um, unacquainted with. But it makes sense. Anne would be into me. Anne as a theater kid. Like when it comes down to it, Anne as a theater kid. I need to hear the soundtrack <laughs> and read the booklet. I, for some reason... When you said the Annie musicals, my brain went to Annie Get Your Gun, and uh, that is not it. <laughs> um, I yeah, that would probably be pretty fun. I want to hear more about the musicals. Uh, what what's so great about them? Please please give me a desire to search out a musical tonight. So the soundtrack to the first one is on Spotify. Um, I don't know of any like recordings of them that exist, although I'm sure you could find bad recordings of YouTube. So um, the first one is essentially an adaptation of just the first book. Um, and then the second one, which is called Anne and Gilbert, is an adaptation of the subsequent three books, essentially. So the first one is Anne of Green Gables, and the, th- the second one is Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars kind of rolled into one. And some liberties taken with the story. But so what what is it that I like about them? I mean, I think that I find them very enjoyable adaptations in that they reprise things that I love from the books in in a in a new way, but also in a in a way that captures the things that I love. Um, I will also say I prefer especially the soundtrack of the second one. There are there are some bits in the first one that are like a little bit, uh, but um, there are some bits that I very much like. So I think there's something, especially if it is a beloved work for you like it is for me, there's something very fun in seeing the 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 characters and specific moments sort of rendered um, in in the musical form. And, and a lot of it is done very cleverly. Caddy, do you have more questions about the uh, musicals? No, I don't. Um, I want to move on into 
the part of Anne of Green Gables that is the dearest to my heart, which is all the queer subtext and the fact that Diana and Anne are definitely girlfriends. Preach. I think that was the biggest thing on my notes today was to talk about the queer baiting because this is pretty gay. I mean it in the best possible sense, obviously. Oh yeah, Anne is Anne is not Anne is not a straight woman. And um so I have not specifically read Ellen Montgomery's diaries, but I have friends who have who have quoted to me passages that strongly suspect that that strongly suggest rather that Ellen Montgomery was also not a straight woman. And yeah, no, there's so much queer subtext in Anne. And I think that's also, like I said, I was paying attention on this reread to why I like these books so much. And I think, I mean, there's so much queer subtext, like it's very familiar. The experience of like Anne is definitely in love with, I mean, she's absolutely in love with Diana. She's also in love with Mrs. Allen. She's also in love with Miss Stacy. Um, and especially those, those experiences were very familiar to me of like looking back and being like, oh, I had such a crush on that teacher from elementary school. But of course I had no, at the time, like, language for understanding that that's what that was. Uh, so I think I, I find that it's just very familiar. Um, the other, I also was kind of noticing um, that just the whole narrative of Anne reads to me kind of like a queer fantasy in that like, I mean, part of how I interpret like my queerness as a child is just that I was very, very weird. And that's how it man like weird in scarecrows. Um, and so I think this book is, is such a, at least for me, like a queer fantasy of my childhood and that you have this kid who's super weird and she's been sort of rejected and ostracized for it most of her life. And then she comes to this place where she is all of a sudden just super appreciated for all of the things that make her weird and different. Um, and so I think it's very much like the sort of like queer fantasy of acceptance for me as well. Um, there is quite a lot of scholarship around Ellen Montgomery's sexuality, and uh, I don't remember it all right now, but it, it does seem pretty clear to uh, that that through a modern lens, like were she in a modern context, she would be a queer person. I think it's hard to talk about queer baiting when we're talking about a book published in 1908 because it's a um, conversation of context. And when we look at the coding of queer relationships during this time period, uh, you kind of can do all the queer fanciness you want with the storyline as long as the characters end up married to men or women, depending on what the queerness is. So I I'm I'm really kind of hesitant like I understand how in a modern context it is queer baiting like if this book was written today it would be like oh come on but at the time there wasn't really the possibility of prevent of presenting two women in a partnership beyond an intimate friendship um and I I do think this book is about as queer as you got at the time uh, there's also um, Aunt Josephine, who is, I think, also a queer-coded character and made explicitly queer in Anne with an E, which is another thing that I like about the series. But I, I have to agree with what you were saying, Bailey, about sort of queerness being codis, 
queerness being coded as weirdness when you're a child. Uh, and I do think that may be kind of the underlying current that draws me to it, especially as someone who grew up in the country and did spend a lot of time wandering around uh, creating emotional attachments with trees. Fair point about the queer baiting. I think that is a contextual thing that is important for us to keep in mind. Um, so there is another relationship that I find quite not scandalous, but again, it is a sign of the times and, and I think context is super important. And that's between the Cuthberts. I I think that in a post Game of Thrones world, it's hard to think of, um, you know, of, of older, like uh, adult siblings living together and raising a child together um, without immediately going to this like incestuous a complex kind of depraved type of relationship um and that sort of that that made me giggle it's like I expected throughout the entire reading of it that at some point one of them was gonna not push a child out of a window and you know continue banging but like uh but rather like that something would either develop or that something would come up and I'm sure that there'll be some development as time goes but you know Miss Cuthbert is, you know, she's she's pretty uh, she's pretty matronly is the word that I'm looking for. So I don't expect her to be married off in any of the following books. But I still thought that that relationship was funny, especially taking into. Yeah, especially taking into mind the, the context in which we are. I think that's fair. It, it does. It makes me it reminds me of being a child and like distinctly having to like remind myself that they were sister and brother, not husband and wife as a kid, because it's definitely, I mean, it's Ms. and Mr. Cuthbert. It's, it's a slightly odd situation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's all I have to say to that, but that is, that is quite funny. And I can see why you read it with that, uh, sort of reception. I think there's a, a simple explanation, which is that everybody in this book is gay. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, but I find it really interesting when we think about this as L.M. Montgomery's escapist fantasy, the choice to have Anne not go to a nuclear family, beautiful home with a couple who have just always longed for children of their own and couldn't have any, which they sort of are, but she chose instead this non-traditional family unit uh that again that's very queer non-traditional family units are very queer um and queer was not you know a, a word that meant what it does today um but it's also so funny because so often in again literature of the time you have the sisters who you find out aren't really sisters or the brothers who you find out aren't really brothers. And this is almost like a version of that, except it's not, and they are really brother and sister. And they're just this this family unit that exists. Um, and it's a funny choice. It's an odd choice. And it's interesting. I'm sure there's scholarship about it that I haven't read. I think it just goes to show how much we've been in a downward spiral and unable to see the good in things. Um, I think that definitely probably affects, affected the reading that I did of this book is that I find it 
hard to suspend disbelief for long enough to believe that all these people are kind to one another and that the worst that a child can do is accidentally get her best friend drunk. Um, you know, thinking that it's, it's, it's cordial instead of wine or something like, I don't know, there's, <laughs> there's something really particular about that. But since, um, Tavra, you were mentioning that this, uh, you know, you just, just mentioned, uh, again, that this is an escapist, uh, story from, this was an escapist story for L.M. Montgomery. What work of like contemporary pop culture would you consider your own uh escapist fantasy um i'll give you an example mine would probably be gossip girl um because it is the epitome of everything that i am not (laughs) um and i think that if i were to write like oh yeah if i were to write my escapist stories it would probably it would probably look like like Gossip Girl, like where the worst part is like, what do you mean this person is not coming to the debutante ball? (gasps) And that's the worst that happens ever. Yeah. How about you two? That's a really good question. I am struggling to think of one currently. Um, And I mean, like, I think part of that is like my... Okay, so current, current fiction, actually. My escapist... I don't know if this entirely counts, but one of my escapist uh, fantasy works of fiction is definitely um, the Wayfarers series by Becky Chambers, which are um, like, they're like space operas, but like very sweet, lovely space operas. And they like imagine a future where things are slightly better than they are now. Um, And also really cool technology. Mine, I'm I'm embarrassed. This tells this is gonna tell you something about my form of escapism. My escapist uh, uh, literature is the Outlander series. This weird, bloody, <laughs> violent world. Uh, most people would not fantasize about being suddenly flung through time, two hundred years in the past, um, and having to start a new life. But for me, what I I see and what I have fantasized about with these books is suddenly all your daily problems are just gone replaced by a set of you know much more challenging and treacherous problems but there's that relief of I don't have to answer that email you know I don't I don't have to keep looking for a job I have to find a way to eat and maybe marry a nobleman who can protect me and perhaps I don't love him but you know there's always the witch next door um it's a really true escapism. So yeah, I mean, my escapism is fantasizing about spontaneous time travel. And if we go in a literary sense, then mine would probably be a queer version of a Jasmine Guillory novel, which if you haven't heard of them, they're so cheesy. They're like these total rom-coms and there's people of color and they're like not bad because they're people of color. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's 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 the world I would want to live in where like I can walk in heels for hours on end without ever having painful feet and uh, being able to walk in them without looking like I just got off a very long horse ride or things like that. Anyways. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, Um, I think I, I entirely get 
Outlander is an escapist fantasy Tefer because it's yeah it's your problems are completely different problems than they are currently it's a different flavor of plague so I was gonna say I want to talk a little bit about because I think another thing that I love about these books is Matthew and Marilla and how they like change and grow through their relationship with Anne and I'm I mean I can give my take on that but I'm interested in hearing how you two feel about Matthew and Marilla apart from thinking they're secretly banging (laughs) one of the parts I love the most is about halfway through the book when Matthew insists on puffed sleeves that is literally the title of the chapter I'm gonna actually read a passage because I I like it The more Matthew thought about the matter, the more he was convinced that Anne never had been dressed like the other girls, never since she had come to Green Gables. Marilla kept her clothed in plain, dark dresses, all made after the same unvarying pattern. Uh, And then he was quite sure that Anne's sleeves did not look at all like the sleeves the other girls wore. And he wondered why Marilla always kept her so plainly and soberly gowned. And I love this section because Matthew, who is not somebody who pays attention to fashion, notices that Anne is not fitting in and notices that Marilla is making Anne not fit in. And I I think there's probably a little bit of sympathy there because Marilla really runs the house. Matthew is described as painfully shy. And I I think we see a com... I mean, obviously, we see a camaraderie between Matthew and Anne, but that's a moment where he goes, well, I can give her a different experience here. And I think we do really see Matthew and Marilla learn from each other and play off each other uh, in a way that's really nice. But that's the moment that touches me, that, that Matthew just kind of sees what Anne needs when Marilla is really concerned and anxious about keeping Anne kind of safe and sensible and not letting her build her hopes too high. That's really interesting because in hearing you say that, that just made me realize that um, Matthew is the more maternal one of the two and Marilla is probably the more uh, quote-unquote paternal, uh, you know, uh, side of the family. Um, I, I, you know, I think coming from a Francophone background where stories of this era are generally depicted with a lot of violence, Um, whether you take European literature or even Quebec literature. I mean, they were very open about the poverty and the amount of uh, abuse. I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop with Marilla. I kept expecting her to become like this, this wicked adopted mother character. Um, And I, I, I'd like to notice how, um, how she let herself also not just be influenced by Matthew, but be influenced by Anne and just open up, you know, slowly and surely. I thought that was really, that was really sweet. Um, there was something there that, yeah, there was something there to, that, that makes me hopeful, um, but in a very guarded way because uh, we live in troubling times and I'm a person of color and I never feel safe. Um, so... Yeah, but, uh, and Matthew, I mean, I thought that it was really adorable to see Anne create this really lovely relationship with him immediately, like, and just to, like, he's he's a very devoted 
uh, character. And I think that that's really, that's really lovely. And, and so is Marilla, if we're being honest, like, I mean, she, she really does tend to all of Anne's needs. So, um, yeah, there are characters that, that I appreciated. I think, you know, as we continue this series, it'll be interesting to see, like, if I'm able to get rid of some of this, uh, in a, like, instant apprehension, right? Like, I, I, I think I'm, I'm very used to things not being like a fairy tale, uh, either in life or um, in any form of literature that where I can feel a sense of uh, belonging. Uh, so hopefully I'm able to suspend that a bit more and, and it'll be a bit easier and I'll be a bit less of like an anchor in our conversations because I keep feeling like I'm bringing it down. But um, I think that'll be that'll be interesting to see. I hope neither of them dies, Bailey. No, I think um, I think that's super fair. Like, I think I think that you're bringing a, a valuable perspective to like this is very much a fairy tale. And I like I would like it's it's a fantasy and a fairy tale in that like really bad I mean bad things happen but really bad things don't happen and and this story is at least Anne is shielded from like other than her up her childhood until now Anne is shielded from like most major forms of oppression um, and I think that that. I can definitely see how that creates like a distance between between you or between various readers and and these texts. Um, I agree with like both of what you said about the things that you like about Marilla and Matthew. And I think especially jumping off sort of what Teffer was saying, like that Marilla's like Marilla's journey of becoming less repressed than she is at the beginning of the book is, I think, one of my favorite things about the arc of this novel. Um, because you just, you see so plainly that Marilla has been taught her whole life not to show emotion and not to feel things deeply. And she has to unlearn that and learn the value of being able to express her emotions and it's just, it gets me every time. Caddy, I think you will enjoy Anne with an E at least a little bit, because I think all the things that you're raising as like threads of enjoyment are things they lean into. Um, and they do really update the story. I also really appreciate your perspective. Like, I think it's, it's rare uh, because I've lived among like anglophone literary people in Canada for most of my life it's rare for me to get the perspective of somebody coming to Anne of Green Gables with just completely fresh eyes and it's really cool to think about a book that's kind of been in my consciousness as long as I can remember uh, in a new way and kind of push into uh, the things that are weird and the things that are outdated um, but I do I'm really struck like through our whole conversation by how I do feel like in a lot of ways the relationship in this the relationships in this book feel very fresh and feel very current because we're in a time when people are finding new ways to create family and new ways to define love and like we've talked before about having like passionate friendships and kind of queering friendship and queering family 
Um, and it's true, Marilla is the more paternal figure. Matthew is the more maternal, nurturing figure. She really turns a lot of tropes on their heads um, in ways that aren't groundbreaking for us now in 2020. But when we kind of dig into it and think about it, are pretty groundbreaking for 1908. And that's cool. I think that's cool. And that's something I, I don't know that I would have like gotten into as much without kind of fresh eyes bringing things up. Well, you know, I love being of service. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Um, but I'm glad to hear that it's it's useful because it is kind of a daunting work to jump into, right? When we uh, decided to take on these stories, my biggest fear was that I wouldn't like this big, like, oeuvre, you know, or I'll say it like an anglophone, oeuvre, um, you know, that, that is canon in Canada. This is, you can't mess with this. Like, you can't mess with hockey, you can't miss, you can't mess with Anne of Green Gables. This is kind of how we roll. So it is tough. And, and you know, I actually do want to look at it again with, with fresh eyes. Um, eventually and see if that changes as well with time uh, with the ability to just kind of anchor myself in the reality of late 19th early 20th century Canada and uh, yeah see where we go from here also I'm fully expecting certain things to happen in as the store as the books go along and I think I think Either I have like ESP or this is probably about to be the most predictable series I've ever read. <laughs> I really want to know your predictions. Can you tell us your predictions? I can. In my opinion, Anne will eventually go to college because I think we didn't speak about this whole like self-sacrificing thing so that um, Anne can end up being uh, becoming a doctor um, to take care uh, instead of just taking care of uh, Ms. Cuthbert. But um, I mean, I expect Anne to marry Gilbert and have lots of babies and uh, that they will also adopt orphans. I feel like I can't directly reply to any of your predictions because I don't want to give anything away. But I am delighted for us to have heard these and then discover uh, what, what happens. I think it's time for me to confess that I have read Anne of Avonlea and I just couldn't keep going. I share some of your trepidation, Caddy, because my stance throughout my life has been, I like Anne of Green Gables, I can't stand any of those other books. And I know that at some point there's a child who calls their mother Mumsy Deerwums, and my mother used to say that as a joke quite a lot and so in my head the later Anne books are just the Mumsy Deerwums books um I think I remember something about baking powder anyway uh I, I'm kind of with you on the like like I've got a lot on the line here if I don't like these books I'm losing a lot of friends like a good portion of my friends especially Bailey <laughs> yeah <laughs> who I feel like neither of uh, neither one of us wants to disappoint either. And um, in, in no way is it ever my goal to uh, show up here and rip apart your childhood favorite. 
Oh God, that would be horrible. Um, but no, I am excited to see what comes next. I, I just want to state for the record that I have I have reached a point of maturation in my life where I am capable of being friends with people who don't like Anne of Green Gables and capable <laughs> of not falling apart when people dislike things that I like. Just for the record. Um, and so now I'm going to... I think it's really interesting both of you are talking about the your suspe- suspicions about the predictability of the coming books. And I think this is where I have to make a confession and a, just sort of a self-awareness about um, my tastes in literature is I really don't mind things that are predictable. <laughs> I find them, I find them kind of comforting. And so maybe that's part of why I like this series so much. We do have to wrap it up here. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation for all of April, at which point our friendship may completely disintegrate and this podcast end. (laughs) But let's try to make it to episode 100, shall we? Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast, and individually, I'm at catty double underscore d. I'm at the Balesosaurus. And I'm at Teffer Bear. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcasts to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, subscribing to us on Spotify, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Maybe a friend who loves Anne of Green Gables. Maybe a friend who hates Anne of Green Gables. Maybe a friend who knows nothing about Anne of Green Gables. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by either Tom Zalatni or Tefra Jemian as part of the Upward Network. As part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Dungeons, Dragons, Canada, the Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation, Angels, Demons, Squirrels, Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, Plains, Sewers, Lavender, Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast, right here on the Upford Network. If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast, helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. 
available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.